Hello and welcome to this very exciting Silmarillion film podcast. We have got a really exciting discussion. We've got uh, the end of Gorgal. We've got spiders. We have Game of Thrones style politics in Nardapon. <laughs> and particularly exciting, in addition to the usual crew, including Corey and myself and our head writers, Nick and Marie, we are joined by one of our staff writers. Excellent. Dylan Rodriguez Curry. He's going to be he's going to be telling us about uh, the script that uh, that uh, we're looking at tonight, which is very exciting. It's always fun having guests. So welcome, Dylan. Yeah. Welcome, Dylan. Thanks for joining the team. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, so so we're excited here to be filling the the uh, the void that exists in the calm before the storm before rings of power. <laughs> yes. If you're looking for pre-third age Tolkien content, this is the, really the only legit game in town for now. Absolutely, absolutely. Until and I'm telling you, competing with us. <laughs> I am pretty sure that as the Rings of Power series, uh, like seasons, are going to go on, we are going to see more and more. This is just a little. This is a wild prediction on my part, based on data, however, that we're going to see more and more ways in which. The Silm Film Project has been cannily anticipating uh, yes. the uh, the Prime Video folks uh, in our uh, in our decisions. Uh, they are uh, humbly following in our footsteps already in several key story and characterization decisions that we made in our adaptation process. Uh, most prominently, of course, uh, proved already is the uh, PTSD Galadriel concept, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, we were doing years ago before they uh when they were still pitching their show we were already uh doing scripts with PTSD Galadriel um anyway so I, I it's i i think it will be fun to, it's one of the things that i'm looking forward to but yes in the meantime here we are in the first stage still as at the beginning of our project the only people ever doing this kind of a full adaptation of first stage material so that's pretty exciting um We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> we may have competition before we're done, but for now, we are still the only first age adaptation out there. Um, so, all right, we're gonna so we're gonna jump to uh, episode three pretty soon. Uh, some uh, announcements coming up. First of all, yes, there's my book, Exploring the Lord of the Rings, Part One. So, if you go to our new Signum Press website, you can get access to that. We're publishing my book progressively through the Signum University Press. This is a sort of a, a new and experimental thing that I'm doing, um, where you can either buy the book in advance and get early access to all of my chapters as they drop, as I'm as I'm producing them as they go along, or you can join my author circle and actually be a part of the creative process itself. And you can be uh, getting updates from me on what's going on and you can be giving feedback uh, on the book as I, as I go. So um, that's uh, it's a really fun and sort of experimental thing that we're doing with the press uh, that I'm, uh, that we're, 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 we're getting started on uh, and I'm really excited about upcoming moots. So many things happening and going on. We've got uh, our next Signum Regional Moot is in Denver, Colorado, Mountain Moot in September, September 24th. Then two in October, Middle Moot and New England Moot, two weeks in a row. So we're in Kansas City, Missouri. And then here in New Hampshire, um, uh, it's, oops, sorry, I left a... 
uh, an error again from an older thing. Um, Derry, New Hampshire, technically not Durham, but it's all right. Um, we shifted a couple towns over uh, in New Hampshire here. Um, and then SoCal Moot in Carlsbad, California, down near San Diego on November 5th. And then, of course, getting ready for Osmoot down in Australia uh, in January, which is going to be very great fun. Um, I would also add in the middle of that, on the 22nd of October, uh, the Prancing Pony podcast is ho- is hosting its conference um, uh, out in uh, Milwaukee at Marquette University on October 22nd. So that's, it's right, it's, uh, it's the... Um, the little the gauntlet of moots there in October. Lots of moot action in October, three weeks in a row. Uh, I'm going to be uh, in Milwaukee speaking at the Prancing Pony moot uh, as well, so I'm looking forward to that also. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, it's going to be great fun. I see that uh, Alana is here, uh, one of our hosts of, of Osmoot down in Australia. So uh, really look and really looking forward. I'm hoping to get a chance to hang out uh, with Philip Menzies when I'm down there, too. Uh, uh, really excited to get the chance to meet Philip in person. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, lots of uh, lots of. Uh, of of anticipation uh, for Osmoot. Uh, already starting to get excited about that now. Uh, beginning to approach our first ever Southern Hemisphere moot at Signum. Going to be great, great fun. All right. Um, I th- think... Okay, the, the one other thing... <clears throat> sorry, the one other thing I did want to mention in addition is just to draw people's attention to uh, the new show that uh, Maggie Park and I are doing called Rings and Realms. Uh, this is going to be our analysis show of the Rings of, of uh, the Prime Video Rings of Power show. Um, we are going to be doing we're going to be dropping that on like Wednesdays or Thursdays at the week after the show comes. So it's not going to be an immediate reaction show. It's going to be a deep dive analysis show where we really think carefully through the episode uh, and look at some of the really fun Tolkien stuff that's going on uh, in those episodes. Um, so you can look for those. I urge you to go and subscribe to the uh, Rings and Realms YouTube channel. Um, <clears throat> and you can follow us on various social media outlets as well uh, to get updates uh, and see some of the fun stuff uh, that we're going to be posting here in the next couple of weeks um so uh go to rings and realms uh search for rings and realms on uh, on youtube and you'll find it uh and uh, that's going to be that's going to be a great a great fun a great fun show so i hope that you will uh that you will check that out all right now <clears throat> the map as always as always we pause to look at them okay here's my new thing today marie my new thing today is the ravines of Taglin down here. Is there... Uh, this is basically... This is just a Turin thing. This is where Glaurung is going to get stabbed, right? That's why this is on the map? Right? Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's one of those... It's it's an oddity in its way, right? And we got the Fens of Sirion and stuff, but that's, that's a different kind of thing. Um, just to be like, oh, and here... The river runs into ravines. Like, I bet you there's a bunch of other places where others of these rivers run into ravines, right, in various places. Maybe even particularly steep and narrow ones, right? But um, but this this is clearly a Turin plot anchor, right, so that you can, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, the river Narag probably it has some ravines in it. You'd think. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Based on how it's described. And yet the reason why that's called on the map is so we know where Blaron was going. 
Exactly. And it is really interesting when you think about the course. We're, we're a ways away still from thinking about the Turin story. Um, but it is really fun to think about how, you know, the... The Turin story is really a very localized story. I mean, you've got like all the stuff right here, right? You've got, uh, um, uh, you know, you've got Brethel, the ravines, Amunruth, Nargothrond, all, you know, the, the crossings of Teglin, of course, which is an important place also in his story. Um, all that stuff right there. I know, obviously, he's up in, in Dorlom and, and everything as well uh, in his birth. But yeah, you can see all these things kind of clustered right here where he spent so much of his life. Um, anyway, okay, sorry. That's my little map contemplation. I can't go by the map without contemplating it. Um, we'll come back and refer to this. So we're now up to the third one. So one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, one of the things that I, one of the reasons I like this table here um, is to kind of look at the, the sort of the through lines here. Um, like what are, what have our A plots been? All the way through, right? So, so far, our A-plots have been Sauron, Thuringuethel, and now Baron, right? It's So, we've had two bad guy A-plots, right, for the first two episodes of the season. So, this um, episode becomes a kind of transition episode in that way, where Baron is the center, um, it, you know, obviously surrounded by evil up there in Dorthonian, Um uh, but that's one sort of interesting trend. And, of course, we've seen the B-plot has been Baron, right, to this point. So, um, you know, Baron has been the B-plot for the first two episodes, and now he moves up uh, to the A. Whereas the, you know, the Feanorians and um, Nargothrond, right, Nargothrond has been like the C-plot all the way through so far, right? So we're kind of simmering the the Nargothrond plot, and it's going to finally rise to the surface right when Baron and Luthien get there. Uh, so uh, anyway, okay, all right. Uh, so just just glancing at the table here. Um, by the way, in the uh, script for this episode, I was actively avoiding the frame because I was like spoilers. I haven't thought about the frame yet. <laughs> so I wanted to, I wanted to, I want to, cause I, I, I want to be looking at the frame, like the, the script of the frame and stuff a little bit more collectively. Um, cause I, I felt like, I mean, I don't want to jump into the, cause this is the first one that has had f- uh, frame script, if I'm recalling correctly, right? One and two didn't have it. Uh, two had. Two had. Right. Okay. Oh, right. The Arwen stuff. The Arwen stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm forget- I was forgetting that. I was forgetting that. Um, but, um, yeah, so we can... Right. So we just have to... So I guess I'm just mi- missing my anchor in uh, number one. When we were starting in with Aragorn, I was like, wait a second. We would have had some Aragorn stuff from episode one, right? I, yeah, anyway. So I, 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 f- I feel like there's a, a loop that needs to be closed there somewhere. But anyway, we'll figure it out. Okay, anyhow. All right. Um, overview of episode three. So this is the big Baron leaves Dorthonian is the primary thing that's going on here. We're starting with uh, his recovery of the Ring of Bari here, right? Um, as I recall, Marie, episode two ended with his discovery of the corpses, right? So he returns to the camp and finds everybody dead. Um and, but that's, but that was it. That was the sort of fade to black at the end of episode two. So now we're starting with his, 
vengeance sh- on Gorgon. We do show the graves in the coda of episode two. Okay. Okay. But yes. Yes. Right. Right. Um, right. Which gives a little bit of closure to the story of, of uh, uh, you know, to like Bari here, there at the very end. But okay. So we start with the vengeance and then we have the departure. Um We'll come back to that, but I, so I want to get a picture of the sort of the balance of things here. So that's our primary plot. Then we've got Nargothrond and Doriath. Um, so Kelgorm and Kurafin, we have the beginnings. Really, this is sort of the beginnings of their political machinations, right? This is the very start of Kelgorm and Kurafin starting trouble, which I was really glad to see that we were doing this here because... One of the, one of the things that's awkward, I find awkward. Um, well, there are a lot of moments like this in the Silmarillion because of the kind of narrative it is, right? Because there's um, so much of the Silmarillion, again, just based on the 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 literary structure of it, the way it's this kind of plot summary, historical overview kind of approach to things. We don't get a lot of the connective tissue in these stories, right? Like we're told something happens and clearly a lot of things would have had to happen to build up to this and we just don't see it, right? We're just kind of, by the nature of the story, it just sort of asks us to accept that like, trust us, this makes sense at the time, right? I mean, I'm I'm talking about the Tolkien's text here. That's the way that that story works. And an example that I would give would be um, the, uh, the usurpation of Nargothrond, Right. I always find when I'm reading the Silmarillion, it requires suspension of disbelief. Right. I'm always sitting there saying, like, okay, I'm going to trust, you know, Tolkien is telling me that the people of Nargothrond are siding with Kelagorm and Kurafin against Finrod. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm willing to invest in that. I'm willing to believe in that, but there, I, but I don't feel it. You know, like I, that we don't get, we're not given any reason in the story to understand why that would happen, why they would make that choice. Um, that is just, it's one of those things that kind of comes out of nowhere and we're really sort of left guessing. Um, and so I'm really excited to see some of that connective tissue happening here. Um, with, uh, the beginning, uh, well, not the beginnings, but with the further development of the Kelgorm and Kurafin plot with uh, uh, with Finrod there, um, and now in Doriath, the Anile thing that was really cool. That was this was the biggest surprise to me, either because we hadn't talked about it or because I had forgotten, um, because I don't, because I, I I didn't remember that closing the loop on Anile there, which I think that's a great idea. Also, totally forgot about that as well. Yeah. Did we talk about that or did you guys add that in? Um, we had talked about having Anil be the traitor in Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That part you would you exactly. Would yeah, that part I knew. Um, I think we were like, yeah, and then we'd have to have the fallout of it, but the details of the fallout came out in the script discussion. So this right. is new to you. <laughs> okay. I, I thought it was new to me, but you know, I'm never quite sure. Sometimes I say that and it turns out it was my suggestion in the first place, but, uh, um, but yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, I, yes. Um, involving, um, Melian 
I think is a great move, right? This is a great move that helps us to establish more of Melian, more of the inside of Doriath as well. I mean, you know, we, we, we talked about the priority of doing that a little, you know, getting at least a glimpse of Luthien before Baron, right. Um, and seeing some of the inside of Doriath there in, um, uh, at the beginning before, you know, the Baron and Luthien story kind of happens, um, getting another chance to see that and sort of seeing Melian at work, seeing Melian in that more like late Galadriel role, right. Um, uh, to dig into sort of help set up some more of that stuff. I think that's, uh, I, I think that's, she's a very natural choice for this. Um, is Anil, is the plan, by the way, for Anil to go, he's going to go off like, and kind of become a hermit and we're never going to see him again until he's raising Tuor? Like, is, is Tuor basically like pulling Anil out of retirement, essentially? Probably. Um, we haven't dealt with the fallout with his son yet. Mm. So Elrin hasn't learned the truth of what happened. He's with Fingen, right? Right. So yeah. there will likely be some appearance of Anal between now and Tour, like maybe in the Nernite season. To reconcile things with his son, yeah. yeah. Or not reconcile. <laughs> I mean, or I, not reconcile, know. right. Yeah. yeah. But he will probably presumably he's going to have to reconcile with uh, his son fairly soon because presumably his son is going to die at the Nernite Arnoidiad. Correct. You'd think. Right. Yes. Um, that's I mean, like most people are going well, to die. Yeah. El- Elrin is with Fingen. Yeah. And exactly. Not exactly. Survive. Yeah. No, that's so. that's just what I was thinking. I, I was assuming that uh, yeah. that's why I was assuming that would be the end of him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, yes. Great. Um, well, let's. Let's dig into some of the, the individual stories. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and uh, Dylan, I want to I wanna hear from you more. Now we've kind of set up the big picture and uh, uh, Maria has done her duty of reminding me the things about the things that I'm supposed to remember, but usually don't. Um, I want to talk about some of the details of how you approached this story uh, in this outline. Because I was particularly interested in the approach to the vengeance at the beginning, um, the way in which that gets kind of broken up, right? Um, uh, and and the way the way that, that kind of falls. Um, tell me about that. I mean, it was uh, it like I mean, so like on the one hand, it would seem like somebody who like knows um, uh, like nothing at all about this kind of thing, right? I would come in and be like, hey, so big fight scene at the beginning, right? Baron comes back. This is a, this is a big action scene, right? Baron comes back, kills all the orcs. Well, not all of them, but he, you know, kills the orcs, takes the hand, runs off. Anyway, there's like, you know, an action sequence. The approach to that was a little heterodox and intriguing, right? Tell me about what you were wanting to accomplish in, uh, in the way that you approached Baron approaching, uh, re- recovering the ring. Right. So, uh, uh, one of the big things we needed to do with this episode was kind of take what we lost by cutting Baron's four years in Dorthonian as a solitary outlaw and then yeah. putting them yeah. into his uh, killing of Gorgol and then his coming through Nondon Dortheb. So basically what we did was we decided to frame 
his dealing with his grief in a right. different lens. Right. So we start out with the whole, like, you know, he's, uh, one of the things we were you know, trying to figure out was, you know, how do we fit all this stuff into here? Right. Uh, which is right. why we put the killing scene right at the beginning, because uh, we were not sure exactly how to fit all the rest of it in. Yeah. To, the rest of the episode uh, and particularly those first three scenes uh the the killing uh Tarnilo and, and the peaks of the air and Gorgoroth yeah that are um we we had to fit those in and we weren't quite certain how mm-hmm. um so the um so by getting the killing done like outright we were able to really during the Nantan Gortheb and the grave bits we were able to like dig into Baron's trauma and his past and his relationship with his father and all that. Yeah. And that's, that was the reasoning behind putting that scene at the front. It allowed us more freedom with how we dealt with it down the line. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the elements and again, you know, Nick and Marie, you guys can, can jump in on this too, from, you know, an outline perspective and, and everything, but what were some of the elements that you were thinking about the, as you say, the four years as a one-man show in Dorthonian, which we're not cutting so much as radically compressing, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> but uh, very radically compressing. Um, but what were some of the things? If you, so I, the one of the vocabulary, one of the one of the terms that I use to try to think of this kind of stuff through, right, is to say like, okay, what what is the job of the? What job is this? doing right so like in the story of baron what job you know what what jobs do uh does that time in 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 dorthonian accomplish right as a reader when you're reading the story um what effect does that little segment of the story have and are there ways in which we can bring in those elements that we can you know do those jobs in the story in other ways here and i know that we talked about this a little bit i know that this is gonna this is one of the kind of pressures on episode three, right, in this season. Um, uh, so can can you guys talk a little bit about that? Like what some of those jobs were? Like what were some of the things that you felt we really needed to capture from that segment of Baron's career? And how were, uh, how were we trying to kind of push that into this script for this, uh, for this episode? Right. So the, um, the, the first the, the main job is to of at least how we imagined it in the original you know with those four years in mm-hmm. Dorthonian was we had B- Baron as solitary outlaw is kind of his way of working through this you know his father and all his you know companions dying mm-hmm. uh, so we had this method of grief and in <clears throat> In the original Silmarillion, uh, you know, Baron's way of dealing with that is, you know, taking revenge by killing all of his um, his father or, or all of the, all evil in Dorthonian. Right, and so, he's going to remain and be the one man wrecking crew for until they drive him out. Right, yeah. Right, so uh, we we took the the vengeance job and put it 
into the beginning but then we still had to like figure out a way for baron to like work all this out within himself so we took uh that job and uh i don't remember quite how we expressed it during the script discussion i i remember uh having this discussion i don't uh, quite remember the words we used to describe it uh but we have uh so we take his dealing with his trauma bit and put it into the nandan gortheb bit by you know in the script we have these fairly literal you know somewhat representations mm-hmm. of his grief in his head with hallucinations and stuff right, right um but the uh and so that that's and i you know so the dealing with everything there um had stuff and if uh, nick and marie want to add anything to that about why we did that you can yeah um, some of the other jobs that were happening in the four years in Dardonian is Baron, the friend of all the little friend creatures. of animals. Yeah, right. absolutely. So there are elements of that in episode three, lightly, and primarily the dog. Right. <laughs> There'll be a little bit more of that in episode four. So we've pushed okay. that forward into the Doria story. Right. Um, right. Which I actually really kind of like because that enables Luthien to sort of witness it, right? So that's how we're going to share the audience. Yeah, I that's I that's because I again this is another thing that I was like, it's all there, like in the Silmarillion, like it's all, but but it's not connected, right? So we have like Baron became the friend of the animals over here. Baron meets Luthien, right, and they kind of hang out for a while, and then. Over here, you have Baron tells Huan all about how, or, or Luthien okay. tells Huan all about how Baron is the friend of animals, right? And it's like, what did, like, how does she know? Like, I mean, was he just like, well, let me tell you about all my animal friends. So, like, is this, is, is this like their conversation on their first date? Like, how does it, so yeah, having her see it so that when we show Luthien telling Huan, she is like, bearing witness to what she has seen with her own eyes is I think going to be, uh, it, yeah, that, that's going to be, that's going to be good. So I like that choice. Um, and the dog is at least a little bit of a stand in. <laughs> yeah. At least making it not come out of nowhere. Um, yeah. so yeah, the friend of animals, the dealing with the grief and the vengeance yeah. against all the creatures of Morgoth yeah. was what we thought the most important part of that time sure. period. Sure. And then the, kind of secondary effect is that Baron is supposed to become an outlaw in his own name and get right. a bit of a reputation so that all yes, the villains yes. know who he is. Yes. Um, yes. And we're going to need a little bit of that later. So we need to at least put pieces in place that they can figure out who he is. Right. <laughs> based yes. on what's already happened. Yeah, yeah. So you're that's... right. His I I had been thinking about that one, but you're right. His reputation is an important element there. Yeah, so we're going to have to use the ring of Farah here to connect Baron to his father and basically give Baron the reputation of the outlaws that was established. Right. 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 Now, remind me because this is just how um uh 
unretentive my memory is. Um, in the conversation in episode two between among the outlaws, right? What was Baron's posture there again in that conversation? In their like, so what are we, what are the plans moving forward conversation that they had? What, what was Baron's posture? So Baron's position is essentially, um, we're going to stay until we get everybody out. We're going we're gonna to stay and get everybody out, right? He was dedicated right. to remaining, right? Okay. Yeah. And there's a certain I thought. amount. Yeah, there's a yeah. certain amount of, we're going to kill all the orcs. Yes. Because he, yes. he mentions a couple of times, yeah. um, you know, oh, no, we killed all. You know, like, he's super gung-ho about killing orcs also. Yeah, I remember very, the... The the delivery of that like we killed them all line in yeah. episode one that we did it yes. at uh, at Mythmoot that was really fun um, yeah so yeah. so that's um, so that's part of his his persona he's, he's very mission focused he's very he's right. a little grim you know there's a little bit of Bard the Bowman in him right right um, right you know he's he's essentially um, you know he's ready to you know if if he's going to meet an end he's going to go to Valhalla he's sure of it right right um right and also another thing that we wanted to make sure that we didn't lose was Baron's competence um because he spends a lot of the story kind of being shoved along by other people, right? You know, Finrod helps him get as far as... And repeatedly rescued by his girlfriend, yes. Exactly, right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the story. Yeah, and, like, no shame in that. I mean, given who his girlfriend is. So, yeah, but, 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 yes, we we don't want him to just look like a weenie who's along for the ride on this whole show. Right, right. And and the, the, the five years survival by himself as the lone outlaw in Orthonian certainly does that right and and gets us to a place where luthien possibly has already heard of him by the time she he shows up in in doria and so we lost that so we got to make sure that we remind the audience which we've shown a couple of times previously also but we're going to remind the audience this guy's okay like he knows what he's doing yes yeah. No, and you're right. I mean, and Marie, coming back to the reputation point that you were making too, this um, this is also the chief opportunity to establish Baron's reputation with the viewers, right? I mean, he's been a really bit character. Uh, in the first two episodes. I mean, he's had speaking roles in both of the first two episodes, but they've been small speaking roles. Um, he's been one of the secondary... He's been like the second or third most important character in the B-plot in the first two episodes um, is where he's been. So this is his moment, right? Now this is all about Baron, and I agree. We need to... Ideally, we want Baron to be high in people's estimation at the end of this, right? He needs to be um, a big deal. That's a real challenge. Going from very little to, um, you know, hero status by, you know, in one episode is going to be tricky. Um Okay, but anyway, there we go. So that's that's a, that's a big job that this uh, that this stuff needs to do. Um, okay, now 
the dog gets sent away. But we're going to see the dog again, right? The dog. Okay. Just check in. Got to check in on the dog, right? I mean, everyone is scarred by this dog in season four. So, you know, or five. We we promise a catastrophic story for the dog. That's it. I, I can't wait. I am on tenterhooks about the dog story. This is like one of my one of my chief focus points in season six. <laughs> like the secret, this and, and the irony is that like the secret hero of season six is a dog that isn't even Huan, right? I mean, it, that's like that's the yeah. It's yeah. the rat from Avengers Endgame. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, that's, that's, um, yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, yeah, Jason's suggesting he's going to show up in Rivendell with Bill the Pony. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some deliberate Bill the Pony overtones to this dog storyline. I, what could be better? What could be better? Um, yeah, no, that's going to be great. Um, uh, yeah, Karita says, I'm expecting a build a pony level of happy ending. You know, that was uh, one of my one of my low key, most fun moments at Comic-Con. I was talking with a group of people um, on the convention floor um, and this one guy who had not read the books. He'd only seen the movies. Right. And we were talking about build a pony. And he was like, yeah, the sad thing is we never find out what happens to build a pony. And I'm like, oh, you want to know what happened to build a pony? And he's like, yeah. And I told him and he's like. That's the best thing ever. <laughs> oh man, he loved it. He was it's just like the, the experience of being able to show to someone who loved the story and was invested in the character of Bill the Pony, but didn't know what happens with you know, about the joyous reunion and getting to kick Bill Fernie and everything. Right? Oh man, he was so happy, and it was just I was I, I felt so privileged to be able to share the the, the history of Bill the Pony. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, awesome. Okay, so I'm looking forward. To 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 Neil the dog, um, all right. So I'm, I'm, I I trust you guys implicitly that that's going to pay off splendidly. Um, now, I have. There's a couple other things we got to figure out here. One, his departure to leave. Why, why does he go across? the Arid Gorgoroth. Um, I was... Yeah. I, I just... I, yeah. I, maybe I was... That was one thing that felt... It was one, I was like, maybe I'm just reading fast and I kind of, like, it didn't have the impact that it was supposed to have and it's my fault, which is very possible. Um, but I wasn't feeling, like, the compelling reason. Like, there's several perfectly good paths out of Doriath that don't involve crossing a, an uncrossable mountain range filled with giant spiders. And then, uh, you know, go, like, seriously, this is a path. This is, he's taking the path of most resistance, right, out of Doriath. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't feeling that, like, the reasons for doing that were, like, super obvious. His decision to go south oh, made sense, but, like, especially after the conversation in episode two, right? That was all about, are we going to stay in Dorthonian or are we going to go through the pass and go down to Breath of where our families are, 
right? Those are the two obvious courses for them to take. And so given that Baron makes the decision, I got to leave, right? The like overwhelming presumptive <laughs> thing has got to be that he's going to go south th- to Brethel right through the pass, like his father was talking about doing and they decided not to do, but now he's going to do. So if he's going to both leave, if he's going to do neither thing, right? If he's going to be like, see, none of the above, I'm going to go on a path untrodden for very, very good reasons, right? Um, uh, That is, there are very good reasons why that path is untrodden, right? He's going to need an even better reason uh, to go on that path. So um, why? Why are we crossing Ered Gorgoroth? Right. So, oh, yeah. So no, go ahead. Yeah. I, uh, I, the start like he's going south, obviously to Brethel. Um. So, but he's trying to stay hidden from. So he's not going to go across the plain of Dorthonian. Okay. He goes up the arid Gorgoroth and is going from where he is to cross along it with the mountains. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think it's past the Pass of Anach and down the Mindeb. Um, I said, but I don't quite remember specifically. Turning to the map. Okay, so he's, um, all right. So he's not going to the path Pass of Anach, which is the obvious path towards Brethil, right? But he's not going there. He's going to go the other way around, all the way around. Right? No, no. He he's going towards the pass of Anach still. Okay, he's still um, going towards Anach. Right. He he's still going towards Anach along the arid Gorgoroth, um, and then uh, down on the either at or on the other side of the pass of Anach, he's going to descend and follow the Mindeb to Brethel. Okay, the red red. Um, but then uh, he ends up going further into Arid Gorgoroth than he intends, ends up, uh, you know, seeing Doriath across the way and is drawn there, you know, in a very Tolkien way. Yeah, so I liked that element, that, like, hey, it's Dor- you know, that sense of, like, um, you know, that, uh, like, fate is leading you in that direction. I'm thinking about, like, um, you know, it reminded me of... Aragorn seeing Gondor from a distance for the first time, you know, there's that sense of like, um, you know, my heart tells me that like, this is the direction I must go and whatever. Like, so I like that element of it. Um, though it, though that by itself still didn't seem to be enough to justify the, like, therefore I'm going to go the direct route. Right. Um, like that would seem at the very least, to have been an unwise choice in pathfinding on the way. That could certainly getting there would be more certain and probably quicker to go around by the pass. Um, in other words, one of the things that I'm feeling here is that because there's two things that we have cut or radically compressed, right? One is Baron's time in Dorthonian. The other is the army that's sent after him, right? Um we get a whole army with Sauron at its head that invades Dorthonian to find him in the book, right? And I have no objection to the decisions that we've made to not 
do that exactly that way, right? But one of the costs of that is that we need, we still do need a way, I think, to force Baron against his will, practically, to go, like, because you've got to think, it's like, you're only going to go across the Aragorgoroth if you're literally facing death as the only alternative, right? So this is where I have to remind you that you oh, specifically no, told be my us. Fault. Yeah, okay, I know. It usually <laughs> is. Did, it usually is. That so. you did not want to see Baron not, driven from Dorthodian by an army. By an army. Yeah. No, that's awkward. I know no, exactly. I know. And but yet, therefore, you to, wanted a positive choice. You wanted it to that be Baron's thing. decision, Darn and it. that he wasn't forced out. Yeah. Because being forced out wouldn't be a choice. And you wanted yeah, him to make a choice here. I did say that. Now, the choice can be made under duress. We can add some duress back into his choice. A little bit it. of duress. Just a touch of duress. All right. All right. I, I no? feel like there's a few pieces of information that I want to okay. make sure that we're keeping in mind. Because when the viewer is watching this, this is all happening a lot faster and it's a lot more present than when we're reading it in text in a script. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that we've been building since uh, episode one, really, is the increasing presence of the enemy in Dorthonian. Mm-hmm. Like it is getting increasingly difficult for anybody to move around through Dorthonian at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's something that we've been working on since episode one. Like as it, in each episode, it gets harder and harder. Like. In episode one, they're able. The thirteen of them are able to move around pretty yeah. safely. They're able to rescue people and move slowly. The rescue and then go with the refugees. Right. Travel with refugees and tow. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Now, in episode two, they're only going out in twos. Really, right. like you don't see the whole group of them going out anywhere. Um, there's one time where there's where there's several of them in one place um and that's when they go to rescue a group of people that throwing wethel has already rooted out and taken away right right so the the increased tension in dorthonian helps create this pressure that you're that you're describing right um and i believe in the text of the script uh, baron specifically suggests that erin gorgoroth will hide them from the from anybody who's looking for them um so getting all the way to the pass of anak which would require because we've already established that that to get to the pass of anak from the area where they've been staying, they have to basically go up and over quite close to where the old fortifications of the Elvish settlements in Dorthonian were, right. uh, which are now super haunted, right? Right, right. Um, by not just Sauron's elf spirits, but like the ones that got away too, right? Right, right. Um, so the the land of Dorthonian is essentially closed to Baron. Now, yes. by the way, this whether is we've also effectively a really, done that, right? This is also a really good setup to like we're getting on a um, uh, 
Tower Nufuin trajectory here, right? You know, we're like proto Tower Nufuinizing, mm-hmm. you know, Thorothonian, which is good. You know, it will make that seem a little bit less out of left field, right? When we're like, oh, and by the way, Dorthonian is now, uh, you know, a magical haunted forest, right? Um, ideally, after these first three episodes, our viewers will be like, well, yeah, I mean, it was it was mostly there already, right? You know, yeah. it's a, uh, yeah. So, um, right, no, so I, I, I like that. Um, uh, I like that. And spies, do we still have bats? Throwing Gwethel's not around. Uh, well, she still is... She's still there? No, she flew back. We last saw, we left her in Tulsirian, but um, yes. but we can still have, she's still alive, so we can still have her bats and everything. And so therefore the surveillance web there in Dorothonian would be, again, Nick, you're kind of picking up on what you were saying, that it's it's not as safe as it was. And would there be a danger of him, would he be afraid of like leading the enemy down into Brethil, basically? Would he, there be a problem might. with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that might be something that we can add a line about that. Um, Dennis asks if the it, you know if the issue is you know the time in showing the army that the reality right. is that the army is already there. We've shown the heavy work presence There's, in episode two. Yes. So what we've done is we've essentially moved that earlier rather than having it happen. In specific response to Baron, it's happening to Baron in response to yeah. Barahir's band, right? And to the like investment of of Dorthonian, you know, like you know, establishing that as a uh, as a you know bad guy headquarters, basically under Sauron. So, um, yeah, yeah, okay. So he's, I think, if if there were to be a more explicit uh, sort of self sacrifice element, that would help me. Here as well, I think it's, it's it's a way to kind of compromise in some way between the negative and the positive choice element. So if he's still protecting someone, yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So, like I'm gonna go over, I'm gonna I'm gonna cross over Aragorn, not because I think that's a good plan, right? Um, not because I don't care, nor because I have some kind of death wish, or again, or because I'm ignorant or what. Uh, I mean, like the positive choice is good. I want it to be a positive choice, but again, if he's like, I want to go south. Oh, hey, you know, haunted, impassable mountain range. That looks like just the way. I think I'll go that way. There's probably giant spiders there. All the better, right? Yeah. We, we, I mean, obviously, that's not what he's thinking or saying. But we don't want it to feel in any way like that, right? Um, he needs to be like, you know, well, crap, I have to cross... Arid Gorgoroth, and this is going to not be a picnic, right? This is going to be the... Mm. This is the worst idea ever. But I'm, I, I embrace it. I right? can't afford to, to be this. followed. Yeah, exactly. I can't. I can't lead people down into Brethil. Um, I can't be. You know, as I, I, I can't do that. Um, and also, I'm, but I'm going south, right? Um, and that's where I think the element of the positive choice could really come in, right? If his choice is okay, again, obviously the obvious plan A is I'm going to Brethel, right? I'm taking the Passavonic to Brethel. That's like the. That's not even. That's not even a choice. It's the only thing for him to do in a sense. Now that everybody else is gone, and now that the mission in Dorthonian is clearly done, he has. There's nothing else on his agenda except going to Brethel through the Pass of Anak. But if he can't do that, now he has a choice, right? If if Anak and Brethel, at least in any kind of direct route, are closed off to him. Well, now he could go a couple different ways, 
right? If he's just trying to lead the enemy to escape, A, and B, lead the enemy off in like any other direction than straight to their community, their new community in the Forest of Brethil, um, he could go lots of different directions. So why south, right? Why south? Why would he be willing to go? They'd be crazy to follow him. They'd be crazy to follow him, right? Um, but you know, but again, like, or they're going to think he's dead, right? They're going to give him up for dead if he goes that way, right? But but again, it's not because it's practical. At the end of the day, there would be a calling that he would feel to the south, right? Um, he would be being beckoned um, by Doriath in this sense that his fate awaited him there, and so he's going to be determined. Like, I'm going south, right? The only and since I can't go through Anak. I'll go over Arid Gorgoroth, even though that's going to be really hard. But I'm willing to do that because that's what needs to happen. So, but but I do think that that one other element, the thing that was bothering me was not that he went south at all, but like, yes, it was why he didn't go to Brethel, like why that wasn't his plain purpose all the way along. That seemed to have been rejected by him a little too swiftly for my for my senses, if, if you see what I mean by that. Um, but a little bit of like, that's just what they will be expecting of me. And I would, uh, I could be, you know, if I were to be pursued, what, you know, would I, you know, lead my pursuers straight into the unprepared, you know, uh, uh, settlement refugees. of our, you know, the refugees and the wives and children, you know, of, of, uh, of, of Ladros, you know, um, so no, I'm not going to do that. If I'm going to run, I'm going to run in a direction they don't expect. That's a classic Tolkien move anyway. Um, I'm going to cross the Arid Gorgoroth because that's what they would least expect. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, I think that that, um, I think that that would work. It's, it's a good compromise between, as I say, the positive and negative choice. I like all this. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what we want to do with the dog in this case, because <laughs> dog's still the interlocutor. Like, you know, right, the like, dog's the I turning mean, point. Like, the, the dog's gotta be. Are, are we thinking of having this choice be made in the Arid Gorgoroth scene or in the Turn Iloan scene? Because the because if if it because it seems like this would be a choice made during the Turn Iloan scene. Like, mm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go south. I'm not gonna follow the normal route to the Pass of Anach. Um, but if he knows he's going to cross the Arid Gorgoroth and he's going to leave the dog behind in Tarnilo and he's not going to like even start the dog. On the First, I'm going to take you up to the inhospitable mountains. Well, then I'm going to let I, you go. Yeah, I think yeah. I think him saying something to you like he can still have plans to essentially use Arid Gorgoroth to cover his travels west. Mm-hmm. Like that's still a totally fine thing to for him to be doing which is essentially what you have him doing this just you know just giving him more motivation to to be looking to to cover his tracks more explicit motivation to be covering his tracks yes yeah, i think other... a wise way to go and so Breath- in, sorry marie go ahead in the published silmarillion the decision to go to doriath happens when he sees doriath right um but also the decision to Nargothrond happens when he sees Nargothrond. So there's a lot of Baron walked out the door and saw something and said, I'll go that way <laughs> yeah, um, in the yeah. story as written. So we don't have to keep that without 
other motivations. And then he walks into the forest and says, hey, look, a girlfriend, right? I, right. Yeah. This and is, it's kind of how Baron rolls. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's handy, that. <laughs> but yeah. I think we could keep the decision at the point where he sees Doriath. Yeah. If he's looking down to Doriath in the south and he's looking back behind him and realizes, wait, I can't take all this to Brethel with me. Here's another place I can go. I, I think we can still keep the decision there. It just needs to be to protect Brethel instead of that looks like fun. Right, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly. not what he says. But... Exactly. Yeah. 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 I know that's somebody that's obviously in, even but in to, objecting to, keep to that it, decision I, yeah, exactly. point where it is, I think yeah. it's okay. Just as Agreed. long as we add to it there and, and he can think of it when he didn't think of it before. I mean, it's okay to think of new things. Well, and the other thing I was going to say, and this goes along with what Nick was saying about the fact that this would be in the indirect route to Anach anyway. Brethel is also south, <laughs> right, of, of Tarn Iluin. So, um, you know, step one, go south to the Arid Gorgoroth. Then he's got his decision point, right? Now, do I go, you know, do I now, um, you know, cut east and, and, and go and head for the pass? Or do I... That... You know, or do I do the unexpected even to himself before that moment plan of continuing on across the mountains? Um, having it be a more spontaneous plan is not only, Marie, as you point out, more barren like, uh, but also I, I think I would question if he were in Tarn Iluin and sitting there and being like, OK, here I am in Tarn Iluin. Where's the what's the best plan? Where should I head from here? Oh, I know. I think I'll cross the inaccessible peaks of Herod Gorgoroth. That sounds like a plan. Who says no, right? Like, I don't think that he sets out with that plan. But if he's already there, right? He's already there for a, for a, for a perfectly defensible reason, but then has new realizations, thinks these things through in new ways, and then boom, sees Doriath, right? Now his decision is made for him, both for the negative reasons and the positive reasons. And he, um, with the addition of that, like... Um, I'm going to make the risky move in order to protect, uh, you know, the, the, the refugees in, in Brethel. I think that that works. And so we can keep the dog story intact, most importantly. Uh, so I think that that's, that's good. Uh, that'll work. Okay. Now, once he's in Nandan Gorthab, um, I'm coming back to our need for Baron, uh, for Baron's awesomeness to be established, right? Because again, it's really true. Like, so let's remove this entirely from Baron's resume for a second, right? Let's perform a, a thought exercise and we remove this episode from Baron's resume. What else is left on it? He's going to fall in love, Right. She's going to fall back in love with him, which is not entirely his fault, right? And then he's going to wander off and ask for help, which is going to be given to him. He's going to get immediately captured. And then he's going to be sitting there helplessly while first Finrod and then Luthien intervene to rescue him, right? Then he has one action hero moment with Baron's Leap, which is cool, right? Um, 
But then after that, he's going to decide to head off, not head off, be turned into a were- into a werewolf by his girlfriend again, get with her up to Angband, accompany her, doing very little, until he hides beneath the throne of Morgoth, cuts the Silmaril off of the crown after Morgoth is already comatose, and then he's going to stand in defiance of Karkaroth, which is another important line on his resume, right? And after that, he's going to participate with Huon, Thingol, Maglor, and Beleg in the hunt for the wolf at the end, which he will fight valiantly in, but will be killed. In other words, his hero resume is pretty light if you look at it from a certain point of view, right? So one caution I have yeah. is there's a there's a trap that I've noticed happens a lot in some film discussions of what I'm, I'm going to call, this is the very first episode-itis. Okay. Right? Yeah. Which we have a tendency to look at the episode that we have in isolation and maybe think about stuff that's happening in the future to the exclusion of stuff that's already happened. So I'm going to go back a few steps and add a few okay. things to his, resume, to his resume, such as participating in the Dago Bragalak and the rescue of Finrod. He's present at the giving of the ring. Sure, it's not given to him, but he's he's there and he's one of the people that goes into Dorthonian to, to help yep. rescue the people that have been left behind. These things are and, all good for a best supporting actor resume. Right, right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, of course, he's in Dorthonian, helps helps rescue people, gets specifically chosen as the prime scouting team to find new people to rescue, yep. right? He yep. is the guy for being out in the wilderness by himself. Then go it goes in to the camp of orcs that just slaughtered all all of his companions and kills the head honchos essentially like the biggest baddest toughest orcs of the bunch. But that's part of this episode which we are excluding from his resume. But but right, but yeah, yeah. no, I, I hear you. It, it's I, I'm not saying he's an absolute nobody and that everything right. rests on this. But what I right. would say, if if this doesn't work, if he's not uh, if he's not heroic at the end of this episode, there's not going to be much time for him. Mm. Um, and he's, I mean, Baron is such a, is a fascinating hero character in any way, right? I mean, he's. Um, uh, this is another. Re- okay, this is a sidebar, but I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. This is one of the reasons why the parallel between Frodo and Baron in the Lord of the Rings is really fascinating, right? Because on the one hand, Baron seems like a very different kind of hero to Frodo in the one sense, right? Or to say it the other way around, Frodo doesn't seem a whole lot like Baron, right? He's not like one of the, you know, Baron is listed as one of the, you know, the great elf friends, right? In in the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, the, the circle of honor listing that, that Elrond gives at the end of the Council of Elrond, right? Um, and he's, the, Frodo does not seem like a mighty elf friend in the line of Baron. Um, and once again, we get that, uh, we don't we get a Baron reference, Marie. You'll you'll help me remember this with Shelob and Sam, the the hand of Baron or Turin wielded it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. But 
But that's for Sam more than that's for Sam. I know. But the yeah. point is, like, but yes, Baron yes. is held as like icon of strength of hand and power as a warrior, right? right. Which is and, again and another. And Frodo and Sam talk about Baron. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. About how yeah. his story is like a great story, and wow, exactly. He's still in it. Yeah, and and Frodo is plainly the barren figure with the dismemberment and everything else. Um, but anyway, it's a really interesting parallel because, of course, both of them are also not heroic in the normal ways, right? Like they're not—he's not a Turin style. Baron is not a Turin style action hero in his story, right? Again, not that he never does anything, but that's not what he's like. It's not what he's famous for. You know, Turin is famous for his prowess in battle. And then ultimately the great feat of killing the dragon, right? Baron has like nothing like that on his resume. Not, not the same. I mean, he never single-handedly comes and like turns the tide of a battle or something. We just don't see him doing that kind of thing. Baron himself. Right. Um, so we, uh, are we sure Elrond wasn't uh, wasn't making a tongue in cheek comment about Baron's resume? I I I definitely think that the circle of honor that Elrond mentioned. I think the criterion for entry into that circle of honor are not necessarily what pe- people necessarily think. Of course, Turin is the great question mark, right? Like. Why exactly is he in the Hall of Fame in the same way with along with you know Tour Baron? Okay, right, I got it. But anyway, whatever. That's a sidebar off yeah, the I sidebar. So hero- I- <laughs> heroism and but yeah, yeah, the the greater concept of heroism in Tolkien. I mean, Isildur always yes. comes across as a very heroic figure in the way the characters within the story discuss him. Yes, and again, there's maybe some question marks on his resume of but did he make good choices at the end there mm-hmm. eh, some yeah, uh, right, right. so so I think that Tolkien is presenting us with heroes that are not clear cut action figure no question marks yes. on them so we put some question marks on Baron some really big ones but part of what we were doing is trying to deal with the guy's trauma yes you don't just walk into your home and find everyone you've been living with slaughtered and have no reaction to that right or if you do it's there's a word for that anyway it's not a good look yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's yeah there's some stuff going on so Mm -hmm. he's not going to sit down with a counselor and talk this all through he's not going to have time to process all of his stuff in a healthy way He's got vengeance and more trauma. <laughs> right. And, and so that's what we present. And a service dog, which is nice. But, we, but yeah, 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 yeah. We tried. We did try to have yeah. a little yeah. bit of assistance here. Yeah, yeah. No, Someone else to take care of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I like all that. Um, so spiders, giant spiders. Let me, let me ask the question this way. What would you say... What would you say were the primary goals of the Baron with the Spiders sequences? What were you wanting to accomplish for our relationship with Baron's character through the Spider sequences? Um... 
sense of horror first thing that's horror, that's yeah. really what what uh we're going for there rather than it we want to help people to feel the arid gorgoroth experience right right which we've been through arid gorgoroth a few times so far and it, well through the name yeah, 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 that yeah. we've been through that place right yes um a few times so far and our though Maglin and Ale had virtually no trouble. The Haladin had lots of major trouble, trouble right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But both of those parties were traveling laterally where there is a road, right? There's a track right. that goes through there that's relatively safe. Now, we have in this episode, um, in, on a slide that isn't we haven't gotten to yet, established that Nandungarthab has become more dangerous than it was in the past. Um, because okay. Mythros has sent scouts out there and... Oh, no, no, this was back in episode one, wasn't it? Right, Marie? Um, yeah, yeah. He sent scouts out there who, who never came back. Who never uh, came they back, feature, yes. They feature in this episode. Yeah, um, I was about to say, Dylan, tell us about the scouts. <laughs> yeah oh about the scouts yes there <laughs> there are scouts uh they you, you see them uh hanging upside down the point of that is to be like oh one like sons of Feanor here right if, yeah. if audiences are paying attention they'll be like oh hey mythros sent some scouts out mm, in episode right. one and they didn't come back um and two to be like, oh, yeah, people on the road are getting wound up by spiders now. Like, yeah, right. The yeah. road is not safe. Yeah. Right. And so, like, again, this is to foster the terror of Nandungrathet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, not to mention, we, we don't have a lot of scenes in here, right? Um, right. Right, so we have we have fairly minimal time to express what we're looking to get at here, um, and also once he is captured, the goal is to express his grief, which we didn't get a chance to do before because he's not on a one man rampage for five years. Right, right. right. So. Okay, um, so. Walk me through the Shelob element of the story. I loved bringing back Shelob. That seems very natural. Um, we introduced Shelob. Was that season three? It was season three. Back when we established, she was there when the girdle of Melian went up uh, at the beginning. Right there, uh, in fact. Um, and the... Mm, what status did we give Shelob exactly? She wasn't was she... daughter of Yeah, she's Ungoli, daughter of Angolian, I know, but least... like in relationship to the other spiders, I mean. Was she a she didn't have like an I mean, they're not exactly like a community. Yeah, precisely. there's no real hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Um, um but there's a pecking order, sure, and she's probably at or near the top. At or near the top, yeah. Okay. 
That's what I wanted to make sure. Because it's not a no-brainer. I mean, like the, you know, the last, uh, you know, child of Ungoliant to, you know, to, to trouble the world it doesn't mean that she was always the biggest and baddest child of Ungoliant, right? Um, and in fact, it would right. be kind of Tolkienian for her to be in the first age, kind of not a huge deal. But in the third age, by the time she survives into the third age, she's now like indescribably enormous. Um uh, compared to everything else in the third age, but still, um, I do think that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, but I remember we had her in a sort of quasi leadership position, like with Sauron and Thorin Gwethol, sort of was negotiating. The spider with her. we used to communicate, yeah, with Sauron and Thorin Gwethol because why not? Um, but yeah. yeah, quasi leadership at best. There's not a lot of leadership going on. Yeah. Yeah, and no, exactly. Right. They're definitely not a work together kind of group. Right. So right, for sure. they're more like an eat your siblings kind of group. Which is what gets emphasized in this encounter. Right. 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 Um, so, yeah. And and spiders, like anything that molts, get larger every time. So by the time we get right. to the third age, she love is larger than she yes. is here in the first age. Right. Right. She's physically larger. Um Yes. Okay. So. We're emphasizing Baron's grief. Um, okay, well, let me just ask like, the obvious question. Why doesn't he kill a whole bunch of spiders? Because he's trapped and loses his sword well right yeah yeah but we 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 made that choice right so like yeah. um so the main reason is to avoid losing the terror ah, right okay. um because essentially he gets he thinks he sees people who are going to help him and it turns out it's a bunch of Feanorian wind chimes and right. um, which and is how they should be gets, listed in the credits by the way yes yes yeah, um, yeah. and he wind, and he winds up himself getting snagged now if we wanted that to kind of break out into a chase scene where he winds up like escaping from a bunch of like dog-sized spiders to you know which he kills a bunch of and escapes from the rest of them right and winds up like in a funnel web of a horse-sized spider that might work i don't know about how our um i would have to look at how our time indexes of that uh of that scene i don't think it's very long though um, so there are a couple couple issues number one how many more times are we going to get the opportunity for hand-to-hand combat with spiders giant spiders not very often right i don't know if this is necessarily the very last time but oh, i don't a while a long time, right? I mean, I'm not sure I can think of a single other instance 
in the Tolkien canon. I mean, we can pull them out if we need to at some other point. I mean, they would be a resource still available to us at some future point in the First Age or Second Age. But this is the, one of our last big spider stories from the actual canon of the Silmarillion. Right. I mean, Greenwood the Great becoming Mirkwood probably has some spider story to it. There's some involvement uh, there, for sure. Right. right. But uh, that is still a, quite far in the future from this point. So, right. yeah, we, have, we can, we'll, we'll have a gap. Wait, yeah. So, so here's one of the things that I'm thinking. We have a, um, as so often happens in film film, right? Instead of just uh, planting seeds, which we're hoping to bring to payoff later on, we have built in payoff that we want to set up earlier on. And here, of course, I'm thinking of Sam and Shelob, right? Um, that the parallel here... Now, I know I was just saying before that Frodo is the obvious parallel to Baron, and he is, but in this moment, right, that's why I think Tolkien recalls Baron's hand when we're talking about this. But, right, uh, Sam's hand is compared unflatteringly, of course, under the circumstances, to the hand of Baron and of Turin when he's trying to stab Shelob from underneath, right? Um, and the point of contrast there, right? Like you couldn't puncture... The, nobody could have sla- successfully slashed open Shelob's belly with the sword. Not even if the strength of... If, if the hand of Baron or of Turin were to have wielded the blade. And why those two, right? Not just because they were both wicked, powerful warriors, but because Turin successfully killed Glaurung by stabbing him up from underneath, and because Baron successfully killed giant spiders. Like, he's the most second, arguably most famous giant spider killer, if you count Arendel, um, which, of course, you only count if he kills Ungoliant in, like, some of the early versions, like he does. Um... But assuming Arendel does not kill Ungoliant, then that makes Baron the number one most famous spider killer in history um, from the vantage point of the Lord of the Rings. This is why I'm feeling like... So this is one reason why I'm feeling like he totally needs to kill a spider. The second reason that I think he needs to kill a spider is that, again, like we have the opportunity to set up the fight between... Sam and Shelob, right? We have an opportunity to do one of those wonderful, wonderful things, right? Where we can do a thing in the film film project, which adds a new layer of meaning to an already amazingly awesome scene in the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, and I think we have to take advantage of that with the spiders and Baron. Um, I don't know exactly, you know, as usual, I don't have any actual suggestions, um, but... I, I I think um, so this is where I kind of wave my hand and say I think you guys should come up with something awesome here uh, that would be really cool but do you see what I mean though like that if we when we're seeing Sam fighting like my ideal here is that we see Sam fighting Shelob eventually and the audience is like oh my gosh flashback Baron season 6 right and the that we've managed to visually juxtapose Sam in that moment and Baron in this moment is really cool. Besides which, holy cow, huge. Hang on. 
just thought of something awesome, right? Grief, right? That grief of Baron that he's been feeling in this moment will help to anticipate the grief of Sam right after that moment, right? Sam's not had his grief yet, right? But when Sam grieves... So Sam, having just fought giant spiders and grieving for Frodo, whom he thinks is dead, right? Going to be... Anyway, there's going to be... There's a lot of rich Sam and Baron stuff that we can do here, right? So I would love to see if we could play that up a little bit more. And I think that means he has got to fight and kill a spider. Okay. I mean, obviously he can't kill Shelob. No, uh, no, no. She's right out. She's right out. Um, but you're, you're, you're correct in that there are many other unnamed spiders in this valley that are available for killing off. Totally available. Yeah. yeah. Um, as long as we um, don't actually have Baron win. Right. Like, like the rule yeah, of yeah. horror is you can't win. Right. Yeah. So he can be awesome and he can be very successful at killing spiders and then he loses. And then he loses. Yeah. No, I totally accept that. And it and if by the way, if Sheila if he the coolest thing is if Sam defeats the spider that Baron couldn't defeat. <laughs> right? I mean, like that's awesome. Come on. That's really especially, awesome. Especially if Baron because we've been talking about him losing or, or or otherwise damaging his his sword if like a big chunk of his sword gets um gets flung out when he hits she loves carapace like if he just yeah ring and like there's just like this huge chip right cut out of yeah the thing. i mean there's yeah she's there there's no way um yeah yeah no i mean it's there's there's a lot of things that we could do there I totally agree about the not winning. That's fine. He doesn't, I'm not like suggesting that, you know, he like chops all the spiders to pieces and then like does the hero stroll out in slow motion, right? Amidst all the corpse of the spiders. Um, Like, yeah, no, it doesn't have to be like that at all. And I do understand the, like, once... When there are monsters chasing somebody and you kill one of the monsters, that's kind of a like a, a psychological turning point, right? It's hard to maintain the same level of sort of terror as when the monsters are just chasing you, right? Um, so I do recognize that. I do acknowledge the risk, at least, of undermining the horror by having him even locally and temporarily <laughs> triumphant, right? Um, but in my opinion, losing the opportunity to have Baron establish himself as the giant spider slayer, which again, this becomes a big item on his resume, honestly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the spider slayer thing. Um, and one of the reasons why Luthien and others are going to say, Baron is all that because nobody else could have done that. Nobody else could have made that trip, right? I mean, it's one of the effects. It's one of the things that I really love about um, the um, uh, what did you call him, Nick? The Feanorian wind chimes. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's one of the things that I love about the Feanorian wind, chime, wind chimes thing. Feanorians are huge, right? I mean, like the Feanorians are a big deal. They're the greatest warriors of all of the Noldor, who are the greatest yeah. of everybody, right? And the whole crew of them, right, have been taken out by these giant spiders. Yeah. So 
this is a chance for Baron really to establish himself for the viewers and for everybody else. Um, and yet, so if I had to choose, honestly, between the horror and the establishment of Baron Hero Spider Slayer, I'm going with Baron Hero Slayer. I'm not saying we have to choose, right? But if I had to risk one or the other, I'm risking I'm risking the horror rather than risking the the heroism. As myself. long as long as any spider that he kills is like n- noticeably smaller than the spider that gets him and Shelob, then I'll, you know I think that that's not a huge problem for us. He can't you know? kill a big one. I mean, they can be big. Like, I'm, like, I mean, come on. How big does this thing need to be? Like, I feel like I'm. I, I, I feel like I'm in some sort of negotiation, right? Okay, he can kill a smiter, but only a small one. No, can we no, get a medium sized spider? Can we settle this on a medium sized spider? The spider is the size no, of the no, I was, That's enormous. I was looking at the comments where you and Dennis were talking about how he, how a dog or even or a, a horse or even a dog sized spider is terrifying. And of course, if you ask my wife, a spider sized spider is is terrifying. Terrifying. So, uh, like, I get it. I do. I get it. I understand. If a spider the size of like a small rabbit came into my house, I'm gonna move. Right. 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 I get it. No, you're absolutely right. Just don't move to Australia. (laughs) Just don't move to Australia, where that's a small spider. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, (laughs) They wouldn't even notice those. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, Okay. 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 I'm not denying that spiders of almost any serious magnitude are terrifying. What I am saying is what it, if the, so let's say there's two or even three very large spiders. Like, I want him to kill a boss spider, okay? I want a boss spider killed by Baron. I don't want him offing a lackey spider. I don't want him do I don't want him killing an extra, right? Who doesn't even get a line in the credits. I want a boss spider. It can't be Shelob. Obviously. Can't be Shelob, right? I would love to see him fight Shelob ineffectually, right? In fact, it would yeah, be fun why? to have Shelob be where he loses. What if why is it ineffectual if he's able to kill other spiders of the same magnitude? Because <laughs> so first of all, the spider slang it's not a science spider slang. <laughs> right? So it's not like it's not like if like a person who can kill one giant spider can easily at will kill any number of large giants of giant spiders, right? Like he is in a situation where he is both valiant and resourceful and also probably lucky, right, and gets an opportunity which he takes, I get not unlike Sam, like Sam, like how does Sam defeat Shelob, right? Sam doesn't defeat Shelob simply by being like, you know, becoming the great elf warrior or something, right? And just like wading in and and taking her down. Um, There's other things and luck involved, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he could be like, I don't know if he's being pursued or if he's being ensnared. Like maybe he, it, you know, anyway, there's like some opportunity that arises that enables him through his own strength and fortitude to slay the one spider. But this doesn't mean that like, you know, again, now it's going to be trivial for him to square off against multiple other giant spiders. Like it's but when, but when you see it, on the screen, it's going to be like, well, why Why was this one different? What was special about that one, right? 
Like that's that's my issue. Is like there has okay. to be some differentiating factor that's visible to the viewer. Okay. Would it be acceptable if he kills, you know, a medium-sized spider and then encounters a large spider? Yeah. Which he also is able to kill, but prior to him killing it, this spider bites him and he is now infected with spider venom. And then he is sees the wind chimes and then he is captured and then he goes well, down. Oh no, no, the so, wind chimes are the reveal like of the whole of the spider. Yeah, yeah. So right. well, yeah. I mean there's this there's, there's other clues like spider webs and whatnot, but like this right. is well, the yeah. I, I thought we were moving up the encounter with spiders before the no, no, this is this is all got to be after the wind chime, the, the, the yeah. encounter I'm, with I'm the wind I'm not arguing chimes. sequence. Fine. And the way you guys want to build this okay. up, I'm totally yeah. fine with this. So, okay. But, okay, so I, I, Marie has a perfectly fine, like, so it, one answer to the question, to your question, Nick, then, right, mm-hmm. is he kills the first giant spider, but in the act of killing it is almost wholly incapacitated by the, but through injuries and or venom, right? Mm-hmm. He, he survives the first giant spider, which is a huge accomplishment, right? That doesn't mean he can line up giant spiders for the rest of the day, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. The more that hits uh, you, the more that will. Yeah, exactly, right. So this is where it's so it's it's uh, it's it's sort of not like D anD D where you can fight all the way to one hit point in at full capacity, right? Um, so right. that's that's that. So I mean, and I think that that would be enough, right? I mean, if he okay. if he's injured. Right, so here's Baron now, like limping and also possibly, po- you know, poisoned, and um, yeah. and then Shelob comes in, right? He he doesn't, right? Dennis, Dennis asks, "How does he get away?" He doesn't actually get away. So Shelob winds up being the spider that had that keeps him, right? That keeps him ensnared, but he's able to wait. He's able to wake up, but however, we have him wake up in the in the script as it is. I don't remember exactly, but. He's able to wake up. He gets free. He has a brief fight with Shelob where his sword gets broken on her hull and yeah. and he he escapes. He beats feet as right. as uh as I, there's been a lot of D discussions in the the chat around <laughs> this episode because this this Baron's journey in this episode is very D D adventure. There's no question. Right. Right. Um, I, and this, this, and the, 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 this episode is like a solo one shot here. Yeah, the, yeah, and the, yeah. the wind chimes idea, the the Feanorian wind chimes idea is straight out of, it's straight out of a, a of a right. It's like that is right. from the mind of a DM. No that would question. be part of the italicized d- description that the DM reads aloud, basically. When yes, you get yes, to place there. yes, yeah, yeah. Um, agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, so I get his. Uh, so we wouldn't want his legs to incapacitate it, or he's not going to be able to escape. Um, well, it's. I mean, it's he recovers. Good. Like he, like he heroically pulls himself out of the stupor, right, and recovers, and bravely so runs away. He gets, yes. he gets, yes. yes, and he bravely runs away after that. Right. Yes. So yes. he gets two moments. He kills, he kills a big spider, and he beats the venom after a long while there you go 
and survives Shelob and gets away. Yeah. Yes. I'm great. As as long as I get, I, I, I'm fine. As long as I get a reasonably sized spider that he that he kills. I get, and, and I, I, I get the reason I keep coming back to this. I'm not trying to be just silly about this. I know. Nobody else does this. Like, <laughs> this is like. Seriously, who else kills a giant, an enormous giant spider in the entire history of Tolkien's canon? Like, that's Baron's job. Like, it's one of his jobs. And Bilbo. And Sam. Well, no, but Bilbo kills the mini spiders. He's He gets the medium-sized ones, right? Bilbo gets the medium-sized spiders. Well, maybe those are smalls. I'm not sure. I think they might be smalls. But in any case, they're no more than medium for sure. Um, and then Sam. So, like, it's like Sam and Baron. Like, that's it. Like, Sam and Baron are the only two... Uh, you know, these folks who like faced one of these gigantic spiders and lived. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I am, I am, I am, I am fitly mollified <laughs> um, as long as we can, as long as we can come to an agreement about, um, about the, about the, about the death of the spiders. So, um, okay. Um, yes. Let's, um, yeah. Oh, and I know Shelob doesn't die in the Lord of the Rings, Dennis. I know that's that she doesn't die, but that's okay. Um, Not that right away, anyway, that we know of. Yeah, that doesn't make uh, that doesn't make Sam's triumph any any less uh, any less heroic, especially under the circumstances. Right. I mean, that's what one of the one of the great sort of things about the Sam Shelob confrontation is that it's like you know the the world has been declining. Right. You have like the great elf warriors of old. Right. And then like all the way at the end of the line, you have Sam the gardener. Right. From the Shire. Um, Whereas Shelob has been only increasing over time. Right. Um, So she is a survivor of the first age who is like as great now, at least as great now as she ever was in the first age. And here's Sam, the distant, distant, distant echo of, you know, the... um, stalwart warriors of the first stage and yet Sam still beats her right um so he doesn't have to kill uh Shelob in order to uh to earn his stripes but Baron Baron totally does Baron totally does I think anyway um Jason has a great question is there a distinction between the terror of Arid Gorgoroth and the and, uh Gorthab or is it spiders all the way down um great question um, I was going to ask that too. Are we doing anything with the like um, rock climbing element of Nanda? Like the mere fact that he's going to be, you know, successfully crossing these even before the spiders attack? Or uh, we did not include the uh, matter of the rock climbing in this we see him starting down and we see him at the bottom and right 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 yeah we can we could we could fix that though that's not that hard like all we need is like like a a shot yeah yeah or the series of shots yeah yeah it would be you wouldn't even need dialogue for that just the basically a little montage to establish that like even before he gets to the spider business what he's done in making it across Arid Gorgoroth is like something that people don't do, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Um, great. How do we... Um, my last barren question, which is about time for my last barren question. Um, crossing the girdle. Tell me about Baron crossing the girdle. What are we going to... What exactly are we going to see? Right. So I... I, I remember vague things about the discussing the girdle from my binge of the first five seasons. Uh, yeah. But I, or I, so, so what I had basically been envisioning was uh, lots of mist and like, mm-hmm. no, just, and magical resistance somewhat mm-hmm. to his uh, entry and I don't know what that looks like I mean in my head I was picturing you know like the, the mist I guess is physically mm-hmm. pushing against him but that looks right. that sounds a little hokey now that I'm saying it out loud um, yeah I mean it's a it's right as Captain Button is asking is the girdle a force field thing a get turned around and lost thing or forget what you're doing thing We've talked about this a few times. Um, it turned around and lost has been kind of where we've landed, where like it's one primarily. of those things where you walk in and then when you feel like you've gone through, you come out facing the opposite direction, essentially. Like, you know, like there's a lot of, didn't we pass that tree like 14 <laughs> seconds ago? You know? <laughs> Right. Uh, like right. there's some rubber banding going on. Like it's different right. experiences for different people, obviously. But so, so we wanted to use it here as an opportunity to kind of bring together the theme for the episode. Right. But I, I think what we can do with that is we can have sort of Baron being, you know, there, and then whenever the girdle's like about to like pop him right outside again, he's like, wait a minute, that's the outside. It, it, it's, it's a matter of his like force of will allowing him to like recognize what's going on kind of, I think might be part of it. Yeah. Um, how he crosses, like what it is that enables him to cross. I mean, Tolkien describes that just about as vaguely as you possibly can. Right. It was his fate. <laughs> that that okay. God made it happen. <laughs> what does that look like exactly? Right? How does, because and that that does seem to be the challenge. And this seems to be a place where I don't think we necessarily want that to be. This is the final testimony to his awesomeness, right? The final, you know, crossing the girdle. On the one hand, it's kind of a big thing on his resume, but also it's kind of not him either, right? I mean, again, this is... He's like the victim as much as the the, the actor, right? Uh, you know, the agent... Or the patient as much as the agent here of the whole crossing the girdle thing. Um, he is enabled to get across, but not, I think, 100% by his own power. Um I don't know that we necessarily need to convey that in this moment while he's crossing. Um, I was a little surprised by the way that Luthien came in at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that uh, that was, but it doesn't count as cheating because he doesn't see her yet. 
right? Right. Okay. Right. And it also it helps mitigate some of the issues with I, the right. other stuff if she I has encountered him first. Think I so see. So she's just already super aware of him and whatnot. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, let's come back and talk about that more when we talk about the beginning of episode four. Then mm-hmm. I think that yeah. that choice will make most sense to talk to discuss then. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, in fact, I think even in some sense, I think even coming back to the issue of him, him getting across the the girdle, I think is a good. Mm-hmm. Maybe we save that a little bit too. Okay. Kind of think about that more in the context of next episode. Okay. Besides which, I really need to move on to Nargathron Politics Part One. Um, <laughs> Nargathron Politics Part One. Uh, so we have here that direct conflict between Kurafin and Celeborn and um, Finrod, right? Um. Tell me about it. I mean, it's clear that this is designed to be a plain stage in the progression, right? Towards what's ultimately the ultimate usurpation, right? Um, one of the things that became clear to me while I was reading this, which I thought was really great, right, is I felt like we got a significant payoff of a decision we made early in the season, right? And that is for Kelegorm and Kurafin to be on a military expedition, right? They have an army with them. Um, and that, I felt I felt that pay off immediately in this episode, right? Because one of the answers to the question, why should anyone give so much weight to Kelegorm and Kurafin, what Kelegorm and Kurafin say? They're guests, Right. They're not like, why should anybody care what they say? Why should they have any particular influence other than perhaps their personal charisma, right? What? Why should they have any particular... And we've provided an answer to that. Because they have an army, right? Because they have an army and are doing stuff with that army, right? And that... I, th- I felt that that worked really well as a way to kind of sort of suggest opening up um, a split, in Nargothrond, right? Um, so because if I'm understanding it properly, the sort of implication is that the Nargothrondrim, which is a word I have a very hard time pronouncing correctly, that does not roll off my tongue, uh, but the Nargothrondrim um, are what getting like just the tiniest bit fed up with the isolationism they want to go back like basically it's the way that you guys seem to be setting it up is that the more active and aggressive policies like we've got a plan like we're going to do something and we have a plan and we have an army to pull that plan off right and we're going to do something and Finrod is like no I don't want to do it I just want to like where at least it kind of looks like he's saying to some people, it would look like he's saying, I kind of want to do nothing, right? 
and that the people in Argothrond are are getting less and less thrilled with that after the setback of Tulsirian and the refugees come and everything is horrible and what are we going to do and what are you doing about this Finrod and he's like nothing and Kelgorm and Kurofin have a plan right or at least look like they have a plan um am i getting that properly was that was that was that, it was is that what what was what was what was meant to come across uh not really. I at least no. not for the way I was writing. I don't know how everybody else was necessarily thinking about it. Uh, the intention was at least partially that there's um, Kelligorm and Kurofin are v- very good at rhetoric. I think is part yes. of the deal here. Yeah, and certainly. so. And and so their plan, like they're presenting this to the people in a way that sounds like, you know, super cool and like super, we're going to, you know, wise up and like, we've got this whole thing and like, you know, we should retake Tulsarian and all that. And the people of Nargothrond, like on, on a certain level, yes, they are like, yes, let's keep going in the war with Morgoth. Um, but on another level, like, there's um it, Finrod I don't think in at least the way I wrote him is less isolationist and mm-hmm. more just it, he, he's very diplomatic about things right so like right. he's not going to look at I mean for one he's not going to look at war is the first answer um but but second you know once this involves you know putting armies in you know, occupied, you know, sovereign territory. Right. Like, right. He, he's, and I, that's the main issue with this. We can't just have Finrod be like, no, mm-hmm. he, he's got to have a reason for it. Right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He the, can't actually appear to, I mean, like, we don't, we don't want the viewers turning against Finrod. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that there's, um, one of the things that in the edits especially we were trying to you know emphasize was that uh finrod and or not finrod uh, the sea bros have right a plan but it's like it, it's a little rushed and like you have people like oradreth and uh to a certain extent Celebrimbor. You know, being like, okay, okay, we're 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 fine with the principle, but let's think about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, part of Finrod's deal is just being like, not now. I think. Right, right, okay. Um, and Ordris, the main thrust of Ordris' argument is like, look, you don't know what we're up against. I don't. I've seen it, and I still don't know what we're up against. <laughs> right, right, right. And so we need to figure out what's going on um, before we start getting ready to like move on Tulsirian, especially if it means we're going to be quartering our soldiers in the homes of the people of Brethel, who I'm here to tell you aren't huge fans of that sort of thing. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, whereas... Kelgorm and Corfin are, are, are basically like, look, you know, like they—it's for their own good. Like they need us for protection. They have no ar- armor and weapons. Like, they, 
See, if if the orcs go into Brethel, they they're just going to get rolled, right? Right. But so so, what is attractive about Kelgorm and Kurafin's proposal to other people? It's action. It's doing a it, thing. It's doing right? a thing. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the main attraction. It yeah. is doing a thing better than doing no things. Right. Right. Yeah, that's the general trend that I was seeing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's it it is a really interesting and delicate line to walk because we don't again, we don't want to turn the viewers against. We don't want to actually make Finrod look like a get in contrast to Kelgorm and Kurovin. But at the same time, I don't think we want to make the people of Nargothrond as a whole look stupid and fickle and mindless. Right. Um, If. there has to be some kind of substance to their ultimate preference, choice, to support Kelgorm and Kurofin over Finrod himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which means, in particular, Finrod's declaration that he is going to help Baron has to be, to the people of Nargothrond, the last straw, right? Yeah. And so what we need to be seeing here are the first straws, <laughs> right? right. He, uh, he's putting the needs of men yeah. over the, the needs oh, of Oh, and that's Finrod all over, right? I mean, first we, like, took those fleabag humans into Nargothrond for, like, a long time, right? And then they left in grades. Because they were, like, they, they were sitting around doing nothing. Right, they were sitting around doing nothing. Good at anything. I know, they were being useless, and then they just went off to be useless elsewhere, and uh, and every, and then he's all worried, like, it's more important to be like, oh, maybe we're going to be discourteous to the humans than we're going to, like, actually take any chance of doing anything to restore Tulsirian or whatever. Um and now he's going to throw everything under the bus for the sake of... Then this one guy comes in and he's like, oh, hi, so I'm going to like abandon the entire kingdom in order to you know, help this one dude. Um, right? And they're like, okay, that's the end of the human favoritism nonsense that we're putting up with. I like it. I, that, that's a good through line. Um, uh, which, of course, is amplified nicely by uh, the changes we've made in the past there. Um, but... Um, yeah, okay. No, I, I like that. But yeah, and that, and so yeah, but as I say, it's a delicate line, right? Because we need to sympathize with Finrod, right? We need to, to, to see and to know that Finrod, but yet we need to be enough able to understand the perspective of the people of Nargothrond that it doesn't seem like it's out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem crazy for them to just throw their weight behind Kurofin um, and Kelgorm in the end. Um, okay. Okay, that um, that works. That makes sense. Um, all right, I'm rushing through, but we're at the part of the show where I rush. Um, Doriath, um, I loved the Anile resolution here. Uh, mm. I, I mentioned this at the beginning. Bringing in Elrond is is excellent. Tell me more about uh, though, big picture, what you guys were hoping to accomplish in Doriath specifically, because it's important as we're setting up Doriath for what's about to come, right? So what were some of the specific things about Doriath and the Doriath characters that you were trying to really kind of cement in our readers' minds here? Because we got this, then we've got the bottle episode, and then we're back to Doriath, right, with Baron and stuff. So um, 
uh, what um, what are we what, what were you guys trying to do here with Doroth and the Doroth characters? Um, I mean, obviously, it's uh, Anil's plot, so most of the rest of the stuff had to be, you know, kind of uh, adjacent to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we begin with, you know, the return of the Sindar who were fighting the Dagar Bragalach mm-hmm. to, or and at Tulsirian, I think, to right. uh, uh, to Doriath. Um, and then there's there's this sort of through line that we added um, that uh, uh, where, I mean, Gilgalad's in Doriath for a reason. Like, you know, as ambassador, he's got to, like, establish, you know, relations with the realm that he's ambassador to. Mm-hmm. So we have um, mm-hmm. the, so we have this um, you know, line that's like brought up at points throughout the story. You've Gil-Galad like talking to Thingol and all that. We don't mm-hmm. we like see, quote unquote, the tail end of that conversation but like, right. it's not really there. And um I mean, the gist is basically Gilgal's talking to Thingol. Thingol's like, "Yeah, I'm not sending the Sindar into huge danger again so soon." Right. Definitely. Um, right. And then, um, and that's uh, the main deal. We have bits of Thingol, Amelian, and Luthien, but they're really not a focus right here. Okay. Okay. Um. But we we do still get like a like a final reinforcement of Thingol not being interested, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Thingol is at the very least not being helpful here, right? Um, right. We have glimpses of Thingol creating problems, Melian healing and knowing a lot of stuff that other people don't know. Right. And Luthien still a background character, but having her joy and love of life on display. So yeah. we have little glimpses of that whole family that are supposed to encapsulate what the audience is supposed to know about them going into the Doriath episode. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I know it's hard. I know when I, I feel increasingly guilty asking probing questions like about the C plot, which you get what, like two scenes (laughs) to, to, to try to accomplish maybe. Um, so yeah, I know that there's not much space to do too much work uh, in the seed plot, but um... we also get an opportunity to remind the audience of, of who and what Melian is. Um, yes, which is which nice. I think is is overdue. I mean, when was the last time we really had Melian doing a Melian thing? Was I mean, it would be the girdle, but Galadriel. Galadriel, yeah, her time with Galadriel, four. season four, yeah, 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 um, where she was introduced to the whole proto mirror of Galadriel, the mirror of Melian thing, right? Yeah, that whole thing, right? Yeah, so, yeah, we got that in season four. We didn't get much Melian in season five. Um, no, we didn't get much Doriath in season five. Yeah, because exactly. there were no humans in it. <laughs> right. 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 So yeah, we only see them in one episode responding to the existence of humans. So it's yeah. it's pretty light. Um, right. So definitely, I agree. That's what I loved about bringing Melian into the On Isle story is that it enables us to reestablish Melian doing Melian things, as you say. Um, 
And I think that's important, as well as reminding people about this whole proto um, Mirror of Galadriel thing that's going on, uh, which is good. Um, okay. Um, Anil is exiling himself. Because he doesn't know for certain that he can be trusted. And, and, and in he, fact, right. the elves themselves. Right. Gilgalad was pretty unhappy uh, yeah. about it. Yeah. Because he directly saw the results. Like, he yeah. was right there. You know, right. and that, as far as he's concerned, that just happened. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it wasn't yesterday, but, like, elves. Like, that just elves, happened. Yeah. It did just happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And Gilgalad would not really be in a... Well... Hang on. Gilgalad's um, Sorry, I'm thinking about connections back to Angrod and Ethelos. Um Because they were connected... I'm thinking just back to the relations now with the... Uh, our combined Gil- genealogies of Gilgalad and Gilgalad's grandchild. Yes. Yes. Um, but he may not know. Right. Basically, so... Sorry, let me back up and walk you through exactly my thought process here. My first thought process was to say, oh yeah, because then Gilgalad is also probably not going to have a really nuanced idea about, like, elves being put you know, under this kind of a whammy, right? And so may be less sympathetic than he could possibly be if he understood better the kind of uh, of um, mental control that, you know, the kind of thraldom that, that people can be placed under by the enemy. And then I was like, well, but hang on a second. Wait, that's why I was going, doing, going back and doing the math in my head. And I'm like, would he have known? Like, how much would he have known about what happened with Ethelos? Um, and would that be in any sense kind of triggering for him uh, when he discovers this about an island? If so, in what direction? So that that's what I was trying to think through. Ethelos died before he was born. Okay. So he never knew her and certainly didn't know the details of her death. Condition, yeah. Right. Angron yeah, knew. Mm-hmm. Angron. But Angron didn't like to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... It was not generally well known among the elves that, that this happened, or exactly what happened. Which is why we needed this to happen with Anil, and for it to become public, because otherwise we've lost all of our opportunities. To... Right. right. So right. The whole point that's... was to establish why people were paranoid, and then we never have we never have anybody find out about them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So now people can start being paranoid. Yes. Anil's story is the one that becomes public knowledge. Yes. And yes. that's something we're going to have to deal with next season, the yes. spread of that knowledge and how people react to it. But this point, Anil and Gilgalad talking about it, is when this situation becomes a public situation yeah. instead of a private family situation. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. No, I agree. That's. I mean, it's, it's really important that it, that it become that way. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm really looking for that. On Isle, again, On Isle is a pretty cool minor character as we've developed mm-hmm. him. You know, he's, he's, um, he's come a long way from being a picnicker. He has. I mean, he's, he's in a really, um, sort of low profile way. He has had a pretty remarkable career through some film so far, right? All the way back from, was that season? That was season four, right? When he was picnicking. So this is his third season now, being a minor character. Um, and, you know, going all the way through tour at the least, um, you know, if we, I would hope we'll do something to resolve his story, um, unlike the tour text, uh, we'll do something to resolve the story of On Isle um, mm-hmm. at the end. Um, but, I also uh, have a plan for him for, uh, for next season, too. Little, little thing. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, I would think that it would become relevant. Um, uh, yeah, again, well, his son has got to be involved, obviously. So, um, um, so yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I like, I love the potential of the On Isle story as we're developing it. Okay, awesome. No, I think that's really good. I, I, I was, I was, uh, I was a big fan of how this came out, as I said at the beginning. And all right, I'm, um, uh, we're getting late, so let us talk about the schedule moving forward. So we are meeting next week, next week on the twenty fifth, on the first Thursday night in which there is not a Rings of Power episode airing for some time now um but anyway so we'll we'll meet, we'll meet next thursday um and we're going to be discussing the soundtrack this is our commissioning uh episode um where we review all the impossible tasks that we set for uh philip menzies uh give him some more and discuss some of the things we we're hoping to accomplish uh with soundtrack stuff so um that's uh um that that that's always fun uh, talking about soundtrack stuff. So, uh, looking forward to that. Are we doing? Is that is that going to be normal time? Murray was Philip able to make the normal time? Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, yes. I know. Yes, he is. Yeah, I know. Philip being in Australia, time zones are challenging there. But uh, um, uh, he just had to clear it with work. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Um, great. Great. Well, um, that will be, um, uh, that'll be fun. So next week on the 25th, um, we'll be thinking about that. So people can think, uh, on the discussion boards, people can talk about this. If there are particular, um, musical themes or connections, especially, you know, as we continue to move forward, it's not just about building individual sort of musical themes or motifs, right? Um, it's also about the kinds of sort of connections and through lines that we're building uh, between all. That's one of the things I'm going to be, I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Philip about next time. So um, uh, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Dylan, thank you for your work. I appreciate uh, all of your effort in your script writing here. Um, did you have fun in your, in your film film debut there working on this episode? I did. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, that was great. Um, uh, so thanks for that. Uh, and I hope you, I, I, I appreciate all of your hard work binging to catch up with us. Uh, and I'm glad you're here joining the team. That's great fun. And awesome. And as always, 
thanks to Nick and Marie and Dave for uh, joining us here this evening. Um, and we will be so music and then whenever we meet next, which we're figuring out, um, we'll be doing episode four. Probably. Yeah. Pro- probably. <laughs> Depends when we're meeting next. So we'll, we'll see. Meet. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm translating that as no promises. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, yeah. We shall see. We'll see. We'll see. Very good. Hey, it's all part of the adventure. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, we will see you guys soon next week. Uh, and as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.